Susan Willis, let me kind of give you a quick summary. I mentioned my name is Dave Jenkins. I'm a teaching pastor. Welcome to Revive Christian Church. We are a seven-year-old church plant. We're going to be eight years old in September. Um, I've been here, I think, I'm trying to do my math. I've been here almost ten months. So I haven't been here with the whole history of it. My history is I grew up in Minnesota, and I do have a dad, and away, and they used to work in North Dakota on occasion, and when I was a little kid, I would follow them in here. I have always loved North Dakota since I was a little kid. I always wanted to live here. My wife and kids aren't with me today. Jenny and my son Timothy aren't quite feeling their best, but for 31 years, I kept a secret from my wife that I always wanted to live in North Dakota, and eventually my secret was disclosed. We lived 19 years overseas, lived in Chicago 7, got heard about Revive, and we showed up here about 10 months ago. I really like this church. I really like these people. I, uh, if you're visiting with us, I hope you get to know my family. Now, we're going through a unique season in history, and I admit we probably really don't know what we're doing with COVID, and our leaders are trying to figure out what's the best thing that we can do, and one of the things we're doing is we were thinking, we typically have a lot of kids. You're seeing we don't have a lot of kids right now because our families aren't North Dakota people and they're out doing fun things on the weekend and winter's coming. I really don't blame them for doing that. But we typically have a lot of kids here. We typically have some good kids programs. With summer and COVID, we decided we would keep everybody together and just trying to see what the winter's going to bring, what the fall's going to bring. It's, and I've actually been enjoying this. So I'm trying to preach a short sermon, something that's kid-friendly and has a little bit of thought for adults. I hope it's going well. I admit I'm just a man. Now, I had mentioned I've got five children, one grandchild. My wife is much better at nurturing children than I am. But when I've had to do it, generally what I do is I tell stories and I quiz. So that's basically how we're doing you came in here on your um, sheet, on, you got a sheet of paper on one side, has kind of some notes from the last few weeks. On the other side, has a photo for kids to color. Basically, we're hoping to keep kids occupied. And what I've been doing is thinking, one of the things about the way God has made young minds is that when you're young, you can generally memorize facts a lot easier than as you get older. And... I'm learning sometimes, like, I'll watch a young person, particularly with technology, figure out something in a couple of minutes. Okay, I'm seeing the guys who are about my age, I'm not your head, so goes, well, I might learn it, but it's going to take me a couple of months to master what you did in a couple of minutes. So I'm thinking, okay, we're working on facts with kids, and maybe adults, it's going to be some memories, but I'm going to be looking at some of the things we've covered in a few quiz, and then we're going to hand out some goodies, and Usually give it to kids, but I only see a smaller number of kids than normal, so adults, you're welcome to hop into this too. Maybe we can answer as a family. First thing we're looking at is scripture. Trying to figure out who is God. And I'm going to just put this in here. It's, we pulled out some words. For you have been a blank for the poor person, a blank for the needy in his distress, a blank from storms, and a blank from heat. Anyone want to guess of what the words are fill in the blank? Not quite. Refuge. In fact, I'm going to give it to Todd for the whole thing. Work 
done this, for you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms, and a shade from heat. And the last couple of weeks in North Dakota, we've wanted some shade from the heat. Now, Todd and Denise, you have a choice of either beans or candy. What should we want? Candy, okay. There you go. Here's a handful. Those of you that are wondering why I'm giving up beans, we talked about Jacob and Esau a few weeks ago. I've been seeing who I can trade beans for. We've had a few people that have taken beans. We'll keep doing it until I'm out beans. Okay, next one. Therefore, since we also have such a large pot of blank surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Any idea what we're missing there for the word? Witnesses. That's right. I heard it back there. Who said witnesses? All right, beans or candy? All right, we got a beans guy. Here you go. Here's a can of beans. All right. Let us run with blank. The race lies before us, keeping our eyes on blank, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. Yes, for either of the two words. Endurance. Did I hear you say current? Endurance. endurance. That's right. Let us run with endurance, the race. The lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beans or candy, Thomas family? Candy. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a bee lover in the midst here. Okay, a couple more. I maybe I've been doing too much of this, but I want us to remember us. Old story for approximately how long was Noah's family in the ark? A year. That's right. Wayne and Audrey, beans or candy? Alright. Here's a handful of candy. You know, I probably ought to have an assistant do this. How long was Jacob separated from Esau before they reconciled? Yes? Because you're cute, you're going to get the answer right, even if you don't have it. Ten times two is twenty. You got it right. They were separated for twenty years. Beans or candy? All right. Here's candy for your family. Here, let me just give a hand. Here you go. You guys know I'm a grandfather. The rules don't apply anymore. How long was Joseph separated from his brothers before they reconciled? Just, I'm going to give a hint. It's two more years than Jacob and Esau. Anyone, can you do the math? Two plus 20? I heard somebody say 22. I'm going to assume you back there. It was 22 years. Raise your hand. Yeah, there you go. 
like. This might be too much. I'm just going to give it to you. Golden like from Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph has two sons. A lot of times names have great significance. Manasseh's name means God has made me forget all my hardships and my whole family. Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay, here's a question. I've been asking when we have some of these conversations to go out and talk amongst yourself. I've tried to something at least talk about. Last week I threw out this question. We had watched the story of Jacob and Esau, and then we watched Joseph and his 12 brothers, and wrestle with big families. You guys talk about this. What do you think is the ideal number of children to have in a family and why? No right or wrong. I'm just curious. Anyone want to tell me their opinion on that one? Many as God gives you. That's a great one. I heard you say something, Dwayne. Many as you want. Many as you want. <laughs> Anyone else? Two. Okay, why? Boy and girl, that's enough. Anyone else? I don't want you to feel any undue pressure. I just want you to know I'm a grandfather, and I just keep on thinking, gosh, how many kids can I get my kids to have? It's just like in my brain. And when I was, Dan and I were starting to have children, my mom pulled me aside, and she wanted me to know what she thought was the ideal number, and her reasoning was between four and six. And, okay, my mom said, you know, I'm trying not to criticize anybody. She just had this, this concern with one, two, and three, and then felt like four to six, that's, you got a kind of a herd, she said. It's easier to manage a herd than it is individuals. And then, but your herd can't get so big, you can't manage it. And I look back, and I think, my mom just wanted me to have more kids, didn't she? That was all it was about, more kids. Well, we're going to look today, I'm going to try to cover this pretty quickly, so I'm going to give you some summaries. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 4. We're going to be reflecting a little bit on some things we would see in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, and some things that we would see as the writer of Hebrews talks in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to quote much scripture. I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. I'm going to give you summaries, kind of like how I would work with a bunch of kids, but I'm going to encourage you guys, go home, take a look at these things. You can read through this this week, and then there'll be a question at the end. I hope you guys will talk about this. Here's how this story goes. We had seen last week, Joseph has really, he's rescued his brothers. He's rescued, with God's help, the nation of Egypt. The whole world has come down. The Israelites, the children of Israel, they number about 70 people. They go down from the promised land as a group of just nomadic herders, and they live for 400 years in Egypt. As they're living there, they just keep having lots of kids, and they're prospering. They're growing more and more numerous, and the story of Joseph is forgotten. While that's going on, history will tell us that Egypt ends up having a war with the Hittite people, the empire to the north. And this is a little bit that's not in the Bible, but a lot of historians think it's going on. The Hittites speak a similar language to the Hebrew people. And I can see this. You kind of would start to, if you're the king of Egypt, you're the pharaoh, you're going to start to feel a little paranoid when you've got a large group of people in your borders that are cousins genetically, linguistically, to an empire to the north that's more 
As it happens, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, realizes he has to somehow stifle the biological growth rates, or the, the birth rates. So he tells the Hebrew midwives, and I want to make sure you see this, this is in your notes, I'm going to use the term Hebrews largely. We're not going to call them the Israelites until after they come out of this experience of the Exodus. They become a nation. Right now, they're ethnically Hebrews in the family of Israel. He's got to stifle the birth rates. So there's midwives that help Hebrew women have children. What happens is the Pharaoh says, when a boy is born, just kill him. Now, the text says the Hebrew midwives fear God. So they don't kill these little boys, and then they lie to Pharaoh and tell him, we're just never able to get there when the women are delivering. All we do is we just kind of pick up the pieces, and we can't pull the child around and kill him. Well, the Pharaoh still wants to do what I'm going to call genocide, destroy an ethnicity. So he tells his citizens, go and kill these little boys. We have two attempts at genocide. When that is going on, Moses' family takes him and hides him. They say that he's a beautiful child. They put him in the Nile River. They put a basket around him. And they let him kind of sit in the reeds trying to keep him hidden. It's the irony of history. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the Nile, hears a child crying, sends her maids. They pull the child in. It's the man who called Moses, who means I've been Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the one who's encouraging his people to practice genocide, takes Moses and raises Acts will tell us that Moses, as he grows up, grows up for 40 years, and it seems he's a master of all the cultures, all the sciences, the languages of Egypt. Stephen will say he's a master. He's brilliant. But Moses never forgets his roots. Somehow he knows back his own biological mother nurses him. He knows he's a hero. When he's 40, he's out. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite or a Hebrew slave. He looks this way and that. And he kills the Egyptian slave master. Other texts will say that he's thinking about rebellion. He's thinking about trying to organize his Israelite people and taking this bad line. He's somehow afraid of it and hides the body. Next day, Moses is out with Hebrews. He sees two Hebrew people arguing. He tries to hop in and bring peace, and the response is, We know what you did. You think you're more than master over us? And Moses realizes what he's done is known. The Pharaoh wants to kill him over it. So he started to calculate again. Hmm, I've had a Hebrew grow up in my household, and he's killed an Egyptian, and I can see where this is going. This is like a coup that's set up. And Moses takes off and runs. You know, we don't know how long, but I'm assuming it's probably a relatively short period of time, a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months. He goes north of the wilderness, we'll call it summer. As he's up there, there's a man named Rule of Jephthah seven daughters, doesn't have any mention of sons, mentions he's a priest, he somehow serves Yahweh God, and he, Jewel Retho, seven boys and probably a lot of sheep and goats and camels and a few cows and goats, and the seven daughters have to do all this work. The seven daughters push the livestock to a watering hole, 
at some point in the day. And I hate to admit life is like this, but economically, humanity has always competed for certain things. And as they push their livestock to a water bowl, other shepherds, pastoralists, come in and chase the women away. And say, we're going to take this one. It's ours. Of course. Moses enters into the situation, and the text says he rescues these seven I almost wish this is one where I wish you know, my little boy who likes to fantasize about saving my house from a red line of beauty. I kind of wishes I knew more about the story there. The text says he rescues them. And Jewel, Jewel or Jethro tells his daughter, to bring this man home. And he comes home. Jethro ends up over the course of time giving his oldest daughter to Moses. And Moses incorporates in the family. And they have two sons. And Moses lives there 40 years. Now, those 40 years, we don't hear a lot. But to me, they were probably some of the most significant 40 in Moses' life. Because all of the trappings of power get stripped away from him. All of the things that would have made him confident in his abilities get stripped away from him. And I think he probably comes to terms with, I'm just an enemy, just a refugee here, just chasing his lifestyle. That's all I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do. Story tells us that Moses is pushing the cattle, comes to a mountain, and he sees a bush that's burning that's not been burned yet. He's just curious. He knows he's got to take a look at it. And he gets to this bush that's burning but not burning, and God speaks to him. God tells him, You're unholy. Explains the history of the people that he's known about. He just describes himself and he tells Moses, You are called to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses seems to have absolutely no desire after 40 years to leave. He argues with God constantly and consistently about why he's not with God. The guy explains and explains and back and forth. And then even God shows Moses miracles that can be done. And taking a staff and turning it to a snake and taking his hand and sticking his coat and it becomes leprous or disease and back and forth. And it even mentions that God becomes angry with Moses. And God even acknowledges and gives him a spokesman of his brother Aaron when Stephen, thousands of years later, said, well, Moses was actually pretty good. There's this call. Down a few things, and this is not comprehensive, but I want you to, if you take some time, think through this. It's really easy as we go through these stories to start to look at each one of these individuals as someone who's heroic. All of them that we're going to look at have some very significant failings. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hear about Naomi, and that may be the one that has the least, which is always true. The one that always are a lot better off than it's the only guy from Naomi. But they all have failings. This passage here in Exodus chapter 4 has description after description of who God is. And these are some things I really want us to take in deeply and understand the nature of God. I listed some of these things that God describes himself. He hears his people's groaning. He remembers his covenants or his agreements with them. He's the God, he describes himself of, of Moses' fathers. He's a God of families and nations, and he loves people for generations. He's a God who comes 
down to rescue his people. He's not far off on this mountain. He's going to come right down into the valleys. When Moses asks for a name, God says, my name is I am. And you try to figure that out with theology books. The books get this long. It's one section after another after another. In the simplest terms, it's he's, he's always existence. He defines all elements of life. I am. He has eternal foresight. You read through this, and God is telling Moses what is going to happen. God has eternal foresight. He knows where the matters will end. He works miracles. We see Sassaf with Dr. Snake. He sees a disease and he heals it. And he has emotions. God is merciful and loving and kind, and then we get, but he also gets angry. He's got emotions. He causes people to give favor to others. It mentions that when Israel leaves Egypt, they will be seen with favor by the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are just going to come out of their homes and give them stuff. They're not going to go away empty-handed. Now, the text that I've tried to explain in a remarkably short period of time and I'm sure I did inadequately. Every time I've preached this, and I hope I've preached it well, usually people walk out of the church and start talking. They'll talk in the parking lots, they'll talk as they drive home, they'll talk out in the reception areas. If I've done this one poorly, no one's going to pick up a conversation. Or maybe we're discovering we don't want to do that. Maybe it's one of the other. But parking lot conversations. Genesis. In the human experience, some have written that even in the last 100 and 15, 20 years, we've seen more experiences like this than we've ever seen in the history of humanity. I'm not exactly sure that that's happened. That's a hard thing to quantify. But I do want you guys to know this. Holy Word is a state full of people who have come here from other places. And it's a relatively here 10 months, I know of neighbors that are in our midst that within two miles of this building, you can find people whose families survived the genocide. When their family reads this story, they will get very, very concerned. Be aware of that. You don't have to look very far to find these families, and they're in our midst, and these wounds are very real, even generations later. Another thing, one of the things that this text will use a lot is the term, the fear of God. And I'm 53. I think for about the last 40 years in American Christianity, if you look at sermons that have been preached and books that have been written and been popular, we have been understating the fear of God for about 40 years. If you read through the Bible, the term, the fear of God, is used frequently, and it is a term that's used in a one of my favorite professors when I was at Abilene Christian University Seminary, he said, well, you know this, basically God will motivate us to do three things, fear, duty, love. Love's the, probably the best, but sometimes you're just going to have to do what's right because you're afraid of God and feel a sense of duty. It's just love. you got to deal with that. It's a good and adequate response, especially a lot of times when you're in a great moral calamity, all you can find is fear. Another thing, I think as you read through, you read through all of the Pentateuch, you're going to find all of these detailed laws. And those laws, in some ways, we can't practice. They're too distant from us. But there's some overarching themes. And one is that God's people prioritize.
hydrogenicide when they go out and talk in the parking lot about surviving the genocide. They'll read the stories of the Hebrew midwives lying and manipulating and using a little bit of trickery and say that's a good thing. Those of us that haven't quite experienced that will kind of wrestle with this, but there will be a lot of truth for it. It seems to me that God affirms the preservation of life over everything. And when we get in complex situations, that's something we should look to. I threw in one thing on the notes. Um, for me, this is a little bit personal. I was in a region of the world that one time suffered a genocide. I wasn't in Rwanda where it was happening, but I was next door in and there's a movie that's come out. It's actually on Amazon Prime called 600. It's not a bestseller. You're probably not going to see it as an review in a newspaper. But if you want to understand what it's like to wrestle with these things like the Hebrew Midwest did in that contemporary situation, you got to watch that and then see a few friends in there. And I can tell you this much at this point. Some of my friends told untruthful things to keep something that sometimes has to be done. Here's something else, something to wrestle with. God seems to me he's rarely, God rarely is a part of violent impulses for liberation. You can see something that's not just, and if your impulse becomes violent, and you have to keep it secret, that doesn't seem to be how God typically shakes out the injustices in the world. Yet God does see responses that bring peace and equity to conflict. Interesting to me to watch Moses is really not affirmed for killing this Egyptian slave master, but whatever he does at the well gets affirmed. He is supposed to be some type of messenger of justice, but there's a right and a wrong way to do it. Preparation for leadership usually involves long periods of humility, like 40 years of the wilderness chasing livestock. It usually does. And calls from God. I know that I'm going to make fun of American Christianity for the last 40 years. Most literature about calls will talk about matching up abilities and interests. And that's how you see when God's calling you. That makes a lot of sense to read Bible stories. Most of the time when you read Bible stories, when God calls someone to do something, they really don't want to do it. They have had an experience of life that has made them think, surely God can find somebody better. Now, coming weeks, we're going to be next week, Exodus 11 and 13. We're going to talk about Passover. If you want to read that, that's where we'll be. Following week, I'm going to get a couple of week break, and I'm looking forward to it. Michael Kendall's going to be preaching on Ruth, focusing on Naomi's journey as a refugee. Then on the 30th, we're going to have our fifth Sunday. Here is the question I'd love to hear you guys talk about. Talk, tell us next week what you think. When is it okay to lie? I'm sure for parents, you're generally thinking, well, you want your kids to tell the truth. As long as truth's on the table, you can solve about anything. Is it okay? When is it okay to lie? Let me ask you guys that next week. Let me ask you guys to stand closing scriptures and then closing blessing. Closing scripture. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake.
sake of Christ and the greater wealth and the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking for it to the Lord. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down. Here's our closing blessing. Grant us, Lord, we beseech thee, the Spirit to thank and do always such things as are right, that we who cannot exist without thee may by thee be enabled to live according to thy will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God.